I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit, Scott. I think we should just go ahead and let the people know that we're doing two of these in one day. So one of these <laughs> is going to pretend to be in the future. But look, we're doing what we can to give y'all a show each and every week. We got a lot of travel, a lot of stuff going on. So it's great to be able to exist in the future right now. I'll do, <laughs> I'll do that as the magic tone. Live, yeah. live, living in the future. A lot happening. There's a lot. <laughs> in the future, including some really incredible stuff at Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been cultivating a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music education, museum exhibits, and student scholarships. More on Schubert Club at schubert.org. I'll talk a little bit more about their programming coming up here in a little bit, but, you know, Scott, since we're talking about living in the future, do you have any uh, gems of knowledge that were ever passed down to you when it comes to pre-recording radio, pre-recording things? Is there a trick to sounding like you're in the moment and not being, <laughs> you know, re recording way back a couple weeks ago? <laughs> well, don't do a time check. Don't talk about the weather. Uh, okay, so yeah, th th those are good points. Uh -huh. I used to be real good down in my job in Knoxville about pre-recording my shows because, you know, I was in the symphony, so there was uh, oftentimes things would overlap and mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. Anyway, I, I mean, I I was on the air while I, while I interviewed uh, live in Minnesota back in 2018. So, hey. you know, I, I did some juggling, but I, I think I did pretty good. I would even time it out so great to where I could do time checks. It just, you know, you have to make sure you're your producer or whoever presses right. play at the right time. Exactly. See, there's a lot of trust involved, yep. but <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, in, in, in our little intro today, I wanted to um, go over to the internet, go to social media. We, we can stomp on the evils of social media for a long time, but surely there are things that you have grown to love or going back, you appreciate something about the advent of this thing social media. Let me go on record first and say <laughs> that I am Here we go. so glad that I got off Facebook. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was really bringing me down yeah. in a lot of ways because it, it, even with the the very curated list of friends that yeah. I had, mm -hmm. if I would get on at any and at any point say anything negative or sound down, yeah. nobody came to prop me up. Everybody was all like, well, it sounds like this is a problem rooted somewhere else. Or they come in with some dumbass joke, waka waka, you know, here's a joke about your pain. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. Yeah. But I am still. So on... now that you've gotten that out. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, but on Twitter, I have used Twitter mainly to follow black, uh, non-white artists mm -hmm. and commentators. Because I don't have, a, I, I don't live in a neighborhood with a lot of black people around me. Um, my interaction is limited when I have it. And so I want to make sure that I'm in on the conversations. Okay. And I also follow uh, some reporters who will post things about stories that they have coming up before they'll be available on MSNBC or yeah. CNN or whatever. So you can kind of get out in front. Folks like of a, Unicorn Riot. You right. Know. You can get out in front. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, mainly I, I, I do it so that I can be uh, in on the conversations that are happening in communities. I don't have a lot of direct contact. So with. basically you're saying social media is like a, a cultural connector for you. you get in a to, lot of ways. You get to uh, do that. Well, a, a lot of that does happen on uh, on Twitter. And a bit of that was happening <laughs> this morning when I woke up again. I'm 
where we're we're in the past but in the future so uh i get on twitter and you know shout out to delaney over there at uh classically black she's always <laughs> keeping me up on what the youngsters are, are doing and mm-hmm. arguing about she quote tweeted a meme um by saying oh look the classical music people are classical musicking in the replies <laughs> basically uh it's a guy doing some you know very fancy steps <laughs> dressed as a prototypical you know colonial man maybe he's pretending to be mozart here and uh he is doing a little jig to this tune very recognizable western european classical composition what 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 do we have here what what is that scott that is the can can uh, a dance that comes from orpheus in his underwear <laughs> what's the real name because folks don't know <laughs> orpheus in the underworld <laughs> but i've never heard that that's pretty good uh, <laughs> sorry that was funny to me um okay so yes we have a piece by um offenbach is, right. the, is the name of the composer in the meme again this guy's dancing having a good time he says basically imagine when beethoven <laughs> just dropped this fire okay so When Delaney says the classical music people are classical musicking, yes, you guessed it. Everyone is well actuallying Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) this 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 moment. This this culturally bridging moment is being ruined by people's oh well actually it's done okay. So so let's have this conversation. (laughs) What is a better way to proceed? We have a young black man who has found some content, some entertaining content to create out of this Western classical music, Western European classical music. Mm -hmm. And he wants a laugh and he wants a few likes and a few follows. Is the, well, actually what should be done in this moment? Scott Blankenship. (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think people are going to go, well, actually that's Offenbach and not Beethoven. Right. Because that's what all the comments are saying. And it's not, he's not a classical composer. He's from the romantic era. So they're going to unpack everything. (laughs) Just have a little fun. Are you trying to tell me that people in the audience, when that went off, weren't going, hey, you know, they were probably having the time of their lives when the when that really recognizable part and of and of started. course, you know, the these, out there air violining. Yeah, I mean, probably uh, <laughs> clinking their drinks and and everything. But of course, these days it's just you know complete silence d- during during the performance of that. Yes. That that is typically what would happen, right? Right. Anyway, this guy is trying to make it fun, and everyone's well actuallying. I think there is a way for the so-called initiated, those of us who went to music school who have worked in the in the classical biz for a while, I think there is a way for us to support instead of just always feeling like we have to teach. I think one of the weaknesses of the Western classical musical arts these days is that it's only contextualized or delivered 
uh, not only, I should say, but mainly in some sort of educational way, some uh, understanding history or understanding music theory or, you know, being everything, but just something entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, how, and, and, I, and maybe you must think about that a lot when it comes to creating breaks for radio. How do you keep yourself from just being the after school PBS special every time you open the microphone? <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no say no more shade, about that. No shade. Say more about that. <laughs> because I, I need clarification on that. My clarification is that I've talked to a lot of radio uh, managers who say, they try to get their hosts away from just being history factoid radio and oh, something yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. more than that, you know. Right. That so you try to tie it. Yeah, you try to tie it to something that's happening today. Right. Or uh, you may, you know, yeah. I've been I've been called to the carpet a couple times. I man. think I think we all have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want to know what the most recent one was? What's that? I talked about how when swans show up at the lake by my house, they make a mess, and radar has a feast. <laughs> <laughs> and people were mad <laughs> because you know I'm talking about Sibelius and the, and the, the theme and the symphony number no. five, right? Okay, and and I think that segue is us beautifully. Is I'm sure people were saying you were disrespecting the music or being crass or or what were they saying? Yeah, you the, the lowbrow <laughs> body. Okay, so what is it, it? What where's the line between having fun or or being lighthearted and loose and disrespecting the art form? Is, is there a disrespecting? of classical music so-called classical music is is that something that is even able to be done <laughs> or are we even exaggerating from the start when we say disrespecting classical music huh i was see when you when you first started talking about this i was going to say well maybe when you do blackface that could be construed as disrespectful um, which they do I, <laughs> anyway yeah um but, but it's just everybody's individual p opinion, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, because you know, let's let's face it: the people who are sitting up there in the orchestras who are playing this music, they have loads of inside jokes. Oh, sure, about all of this. Oh, I've I've, I've been up there, and, right? So, okay, yeah. So you can back me up on this. They're just as lowbrow as I was there during that break, especially the trombone section. <laughs> what? <laughs> Actually, no, this, okay, this is triloquy. In the Detroit Symphony, it was the horns. If you wanted to get, if you wanted to get a naughty little joke, anyway, go on. Shout out to Dave. <laughs> but yeah, but they, but but nobody, no nobody is telling those jokes during the orchestra concert, right? Are they? Or sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's a lot that goes on I up know. on that stage, you know. I know. Anyway, I, I think that's really the point, though. What if we could just take away the facade of this stuffed shirt thing and just have fun? And if somebody gets a date wrong or a composer wrong or yeah. something, so fucking be it. Just let, let let people have fun with with this classical music. When when I was teaching, I would tell the students. The classical composers were the rock stars of their time. Sure, they were some of them. They were groupie shagging, hotel room destroying mm -hmm. artists going around and and drinking and smoking and having a the time of their lives, mm -hmm. just like all the artists that you want to poo poo today. Mm -hmm. We're doing, and and yet we we got to have the monocle and one finger up with our tea when we drink. Well, we are drinking tea as we record this, but there are no pinkies up and there's no model. I don't even have my glasses on, so I must be ready to cuss today. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, welcome to Triloquy. This is Opus 170. Let's jump in.
I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 170. Thanks so much for tuning in to returning listeners. Thank you for the continued support week after week. We couldn't keep this project going without you. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and works to transform it into a phrase that references more of our cultures, more of our stories, more of our music of today here in the United States in this 21st century. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses, and to donate, go over to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Schubert Club. They have some incredible things coming up in this uh, next month of November, including Our Song, Our Story, The New Generation of Black Voices. This is going down on November 18th, and it features an evening celebrating the world's most well-known arias, art songs, and spirituals created and directed by composer, conductor, and multi-genre musician, Damien Sneed. Coming up a little bit after that on the 29th of November is Kids Jam, Journey Through Afro-Brazilian Music with Ticket to Brazil. Listen to and learn about the exciting and energetic music of Brazil. Create your own percussion instrument and play along with cello, guitar, flute, and more percussion. Again, that's November 29th at Schubert Club. More information on everything that's going on over there at schubert.org. We have Asher Lobb coming up in the third movement today, a really uh, exciting violinist who's making a living in a really interesting way using this uh, so-called classical music. We'll talk about that then. I uh, have to bring Kanye back up, Scott, in the fourth movement. I know that's a little demon that (laughs) that Mm -hmm. comes on this show every now and again, a little topic, but there's some things I need to speak to. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and hop into movement one. So, We've talked a little bit, Scott, on this podcast about how there are certain instruments that radio audiences, classical radio audiences just don't want to hear. At at my first job, I learned very quick that harpsichord is one of those instruments. Testify. (laughs) What do you what do people have against the harpsichord? You mean apart from every note sitting at the base of my spine and and stabbing me? Oh, so it it, it even irritates your ears or Mm -hmm. something? See, it's some harpsichord players cutting this off right now. But listen, (laughs) these are the people. And there's some there's actually some really great uh, contemporary harpsichord music out there i'm sure Um, there is but i never hear it and and we've we've played some old jackson five stuff on this podcast that starts with our harpsichord even those little (laughs) it's not the placement it's just the sound of the instrument that you just can't get down with (laughs) okay well a lot of you're you're among many so you know that is one example of that just my taste (laughs) but i've also i've also had that experience with the organ Uh, there used to be some contemporary organ music that uh, I would play on the radio down in Knoxville. I was getting in my bag, but I would get a lot of complaints from people saying, oh, cut that vampire music off and X, Y. <laughs> What's your, do, do you have a similar experience airing organ music on the radio? F- uh, they comparisons to funerals. Sure. Oh, oh fun- funeral music. Well, that, and you know, Albinoni's Adagio is used at funerals. So it sort of becomes synonymous, <laughs> but um, you know, there's there's organ pieces that I appreciate. The Saint-Saëns. Uh, yeah, we were just talking about symphony. that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, uh, you know, I can't rattle any off the top of my head. I think right Cacciatrian. I think his Cacciatrian has a, a a symphony that uses organ and twenty trumpets or something. I used to wear that recording out mm. <laughs> down in Knoxville. Anyway, all of that 
as as an introduction to my accidental, I'm going to give this a sharp. I'm reading here from Gale Daily News headline profile. Organist Gums blends world through a declining art. So first of all, our title check. Where's Michael Barone? Somebody is calling organ music declining. <laughs> I mean, you know, and for folks who for some reason don't know Michael Barone, you know, he's hosted the show Pipe Dreams for over 50 years. I mean, a right. long, long time. Yep. So he's made a living off of it. Do you <laughs> do you think of Oregon as declining as something that <laughs> is that fewer people are becoming interested in? I'm only giggling because I think the the remnant of Oregon fans have stood strong considering. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, the Oregon fans are a rabid and tight <laughs> they will get you group. together yes listen when, dedicated when you are airing um organ music <laughs> on the radio you will get emails if you don't say the name of the organ you got that right like you have to talk about the name the composer the piece of music the performer but they want to know where yeah. the performance took place damn it yeah. i mean they are serious right. anyway but um <laughs> they, you know they they do they do custom travel where you can travel yep. someplace and hear these organs with Michael Barone, people line up around the block yep. to go and do that. Yeah, so they have their fans. There, there's been uh, there. I remember years ago there was talk about who would pick up the helm after Barone retired, and he's like, uh, nobody. He said, "I am Beyonce always." <laughs> he said, "I'm." <laughs> This is my show. <laughs> anyway, let me go back to reading this. Anyway, I, like I said, I'm at YaleDailyNews.com. It says, when Nathaniel Gums first sat down at the keyboard, he was dwarfed by the cavernous dimensions of Woolsey Hall, a lone spotlight shown on the solitary figure below an empty stage back turned to the audience. But the instant his hands braved the opening chord of Alfred Holland's overture in C minor, Gums and the sound of the Newberry organ exploded through the hall. The walls vibrated vibrating with the resonance of the organ. So this article is talking about Nathaniel Gums, who's a black organist. He's serving as the director of chapel music at uh, Yale Institute of Sacred Music. And he's bringing the black history of the organ back into the story. It's so interesting for me to um, have met Nathaniel Gums through the Gateways Music Festival and thought about Afro-American composers who wrote for the organ is really phenomenal. And, you know, one of the leading names in black organ music is Florence, Florence Price. Price. We yeah. talk about her symphonies and, mm -hmm. and some of her other music all the time, but organ apparently was her instrument. Yeah, she was, was, was her all primary about instrument. the keyboard, yeah. Mm. yeah. What do you think about presenting organ music uh, as a part of renewed initiatives to diversify playlists and 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 what's being delivered do you think it changes the story of an organ piece on the radio yeah i think if it's about if we're talking about a black woman who wrote the piece of music i think that we're treading up against that <laughs> phrase that you hate what's that radio friendly sure sure because there are people out there that argue harpsichord is not radio friendly sure and they're going to say the same thing about the organ mm -hmm. I, I don't know what data they have to back that up but that's always what I've heard. But you don't think the fact that this is, you know, we're we're bringing this in, for example, for Black History Month. Now we have the opportunity to really shine a light on some organ music. You don't think that context will, would make the everyday listener a little more curious about this sound? Maybe it, that would be my hope. And, you know, since we don't have much of Florence Price's organ music as a frame of reference, there might be some gold in there. For sure. all I know. But and and also let me say that there's been plenty of times where I've had 
a live music experience with an organ that was incredibly positive because it is a powerful mu uh, instrument to hear in person that sort of loses a little bit of the luster sure. going through a recording. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean that, that vibration and just, yeah, yeah how intense it sounds yeah. can't be. I've, I've had the opportunity, you know, after a, I don't know, a, a choir rehearsal or something in a, in a different church, just going up to the organ. And of course you're nervous to touch it at all because <laughs> you're like, the police are going to show up at any second, <laughs> but, but you'll touch one key even, and it'll be pretty intense, mm. you know, in mm -hmm. anyway. Um, but it's not just the straight up organ music that gums is uh shining a light on um i'm reading here on september 18th i guess this will be in the past at this point but on september 18th in the first concert of the great organ music at yale series gums uh flowed through a diverse and imaginative program spanning staples of european organ repertoire classical music by afro-american composers and gospel music even including a still pan and a dancer, quote, people don't think about the organ working in concert with a dancer and a still pan, said Leo Davis, the minister of worship at uh, the church at Mississippi Boulevard Church. But he says gums is widening the spectrum. He's showing people the different ways the organ can be experienced. He's setting a trend with the instrument. If we're talking about organ and still pan, <laughs> something that's interesting. That, that's interesting. Um, and that would that would get my attention is adding a little uh, sauce into the, the recipe, a little seasoning, the key to get folks more into organ music. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure your ears would perk up if you looked on your playlist and you saw, you know, trio for organ, steel pans and, and soprano, you know, <laughs> or, or trombone or whatever, you know. I would definitely start talking that piece up. Mm. I would definitely start forward promoting that. Yeah. bet. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, shout out to uh, Nathaniel Gums. He's He has some music that I'm featuring in the upcoming Gateways radio feature that starts in January. So, you know, even from on my side of the radio production, I'm likely, I'm not very likely to find a piece of organ music to include in any of my programming, unless there's a very specific reason that I need organ. But this has given me the opportunity to, you know, read a little bit more about Florence Price's uh, organ history and her love for the instrument. It's an opportunity to uh, shine a light on, you know, Nathaniel Gums. And I'm sure somewhere else out there, there's a black organist who none of us know, but now they sure. have not only Florence Price, but Nathaniel Gums to help normalize the idea of black folks playing so-called classical organ music. So to transition uh, to our next accidental, we're going to hear Mr. Gums play uh, some organ. This is uh, his take a little bit uh, from the finale from the Sonata number one for Oregon by Florence Price. Let's take a listen here. You know, I don't know if I would guess Florence Price. If, if someone asked me to guess a, a composer, I think it adds a depth to her catalog to know that that, is, that came from her mind as well. And uh, also, I have to say right now, 
all respect to organ players because look at the gear that he has sat down in front of right now. He's got what four keyboards. There's all these pull stops. And people forget that he got his feet too. He's got his feet. You know, you got to do your footwork. <laughs> this is no joke. So even if the organ is not your particular bag, you must have respect yep. for the training that goes into it. And before somebody hops on my email, that it's the organ at Second Presbyterian Church <laughs> in my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee. I've, I've performed at Second Prayers a lot, mm. many, many concerts. So it's great to hear the organ played in that way. And I'm so glad that a black city like Memphis has the opportunity to experience some black organ music. I think it's great. Uh, but before we leave this, you know, something I was thinking about was that the organ, I think, is it might be the last instrument where it's just normal to not face the audience. You know, it's it's typically placed somewhere where your back is to the audience, where mm -hmm. if you're going to play the keyboard like that, do you think that adds uh, or takes away some nervousness or is a different sort of vibe? If you don't have to look at the audience, you're just minding your own business. And, you know, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. but I huh. think I think maybe without seeing the audience, I would be more um, sensitive to coughs or candy wrappers or you know if all i'm doing is hearing i don't know <laughs> let me ask you this so if you were playing the organ your back is to the audience i mean you know you're you know they're back there listening yeah but you're not looking at them like you do when you're playing a bassoon yeah. right so do you think there would be a lack of the performance nerves like if you weren't if your back is to them are they almost not there i feel like i would it would it would just take away something that I'm paying attention to. Like maybe more of my energy is going into getting these notes and rhythms right or, mm. or making the music. But as a performer, you know, I like <laughs> engaging and communicating with the audience mm -hmm. musically or, mm -hmm. you know, the way I move my body, you know, especially if I just body something that I'm playing, I need to look at somebody in the audience and say, yes, that was me. That was me. You know, I, I love finding people to make eye contact with, especially some of the people that have their faces scrounged up <laughs> because mm. there's, there's a few in every audience. This is called triloquy as a black man who stands on stage and plays the bassoon every now and again in every crowd. It's a few people who just got to look mm. on their face. And I'm you sorry. know what they're thinking. So I love getting eye contact with those people, you know, just to say, yes, you are sitting there and you are quiet and you are enjoying it, whether you want to admit it or not. Amen. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> our next accidental comes from you, Scott. And what accidental is it going to be? This is going all natural for me. Uh, reading from the WashingtonPost.com. Why does the Midwest love orchestras so much? What's your reaction to just the headline as someone who's lived in the Midwest forever? <laughs> that never would have dawned on me. <laughs> you said, oh, really? You know, <laughs> you're and, teaching me something and, here. <laughs> yeah. And also the headline feels a little accusatory, too. You know, like, why are you into that? And the why subtitle is, is it the Lutherans, the Europeans, the cold? Like, yeah. Well, but sir, mm. <laughs> I don't, on. I don't, but I, I don't. Okay. The, the thing is, is that the orchestra, the orchestra, the uh, article makes a lot of interesting points that I've never thought of. Mm -hmm. And, um, I shook my head at it. I'm like, I, I don't buy this, but okay. Okay. Midwestern Airbnb hosts are unusually likely to use the word orchestra in their listings according to our groundbreaking research into the mysteries of regional Airbnb promotion. But why? Is it a restaurant somewhere called Orchestra? And they, and they got this whole thing mixed up? <laughs> Question. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? 
on not, an Airbnb. Not rental. me. Not me. I have it. <laughs> have you gone to a place for the orchestra? I'm because I'm thinking because I'm trying to be. So I went last year. I went to New York specifically to see Fire Shut Up in My Bones one time. So, so that's one. Yep. Okay. I, I'm I'm just curious because I I just thought that that was a so unusual let's, so data let's, point. So let's back up from that data point. What in your mind? What would you think? Uh, is typical for a, a Airbnb person uh, to to attract people, or what? What what are the words that you would look for in an Airbnb rental somewhere in the Midwest? Nature or hiking or what? What what is quiet? It? Uh huh. Solitude. Cannabis you friendly. Be alone. <laughs> yeah, that too. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, those um, sorts of things. Anyway, go on. Sorry. But. It says, uh, it says, one of the quotes here is, there are top-notch organizations in the Midwest. Uh, this is one of the uh, Airbnb hosts. It says, there are top-notch organizations in the Midwest. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra, Cleveland and Cincinnati Symphony Orchestras, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and Minnesota Orchestra. Now, they're, they're trying to angle this toward like the Norwegian, Finnish nationality and lutheranism right mm -hmm. but to me those are just population centers i agree i agree fully what what i do want to point out real quick though uh if if you go on it says others pointed out that even smaller towns in the region tend to have robust symphonies and orchestras i think mm -hmm. you know as as we're laughing and joking about the idea of orchestra being a selling point on airbnb but i do have to say it is a culturally rich part of the i mean specifically certainly in the twin cities but minnesota in general you know, I, I work with the Lakes Area Music Festival in Brainerd, mm -hmm. you know, as world class music happening up there. I'm sure some North Shore things happening elsewhere. You know, I played with the Austin, Minnesota Symphony. So, you know, with with the the jokes aside, there are a lot of arts things, a lot of orchestras in the area. And a lot of the a lot of the orchestras that that person mentioned are in largely white areas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, what about Southern orchestras? I mean, I know that there aren't a lot of Southern orchestras that have recording contracts or anything like that, but, but, but they're, not, they're not any less quality than the ones in the North. I mean, shout out to Sam Bergman, who plays for the Minnesota Orchestra. He played down in Alabama. I guess what I think about is that, you know, yeah, there are orchestras down South, but you know, we, we were busy crea creating the American classical music. You see, right. you know, there isn't a blues tradition in uh, the Midwest like there is in the South. Hip hop, R&B, you know, folk and country music. You know, that's that's really, I, I think, the other side of, of mm -hmm. that discussion that there was there's just other musics cultivated in that part of the country as a, and, and that aren't cultivated here in the same way. So let me ask you this question um, under the, uh, the, the heading here, more Lutherans. Mm -hmm. one, uh, one person wrote in and said, the answer is Lutherans. We have a strong musical tradition in our churches with singing by everyone throughout the services. And from the mid-1800s through the invention of radio, local music making was a key part of community life. I don't think that that's only Lutherans. I know. Shout out to Lutherans. I'm, I'm the, the choral tradition is unquestionable. You know, y'all yes. can do that. But you mean to tell me <laughs> that you don't think it's some music happening on Sunday mornings <laughs> in some black and brown 
churches. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> it's more than music. It's some, feet, it's some feet stomping. It's some hand clapping. Some tambourine playing. Amen. Amen, lights. You don't hear me, Scott. Amen, <laughs> carpet. Amen, radar. Fine. I heard you just fine. <laughs> now, they quote uh, our, our buddy Tesfa Wanamagniu here, Memphis-born conductor yeah, who's, who's uh, down at St. Olaf in Northfield, Minnesota, and, and making some really interesting that things That is a real place, there. Golden Girls fans, St. And Olaf University. Says, right. <laughs> he said when he moved to Minnesota, he was floored by the funerals. Mm-hmm. He said, let me tell you, every time I'm inside a funeral here in Minnesota and these folks open up their mouths and sing in perfect harmony, four parts, sometimes more, I'm like, where are you people from? It's extraordinary. And I'll back him up on this because I've been to some uh, singing events like uh, APM's Bring the Sing. Mm-hmm. And I heard upwards of 400 people singing Silent Night that would move you to tears. You'll get in choked I up. was shrink-wrapped I in mean, tears. I mean, I just got done a couple of weeks ago talking about the choir concert I went to yeah. and how that you know got me together. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely that tradition here. The Midwest is home to far more Lutherans than the rest of the country combined, according to our analysis, the article says. You're six times more likely to run into a Lutron in the Midwest than you are elsewhere. Mm-hmm. That's true, because I didn't know n- nothing about Lutherans down in Memphis, for sure. Um, I think Tesfa, though, is making the point that we're making. He says here, it reminded him, or it says it reminded him of the black churches he grew up with, quote, if you put a bunch of black folk in the South together, guess what? You'll hear the same harmony as well. So mm-hmm. I, I think, again, that really just has to be underscored. And again, the the headline is Midwest loves orchestras. And we hear talking about choirs. I, I understand the connection, but it brushes up against some problematic things. If you say, oh, the love for the classical arts comes from these, uh, you know, good, pure Christian white Lutheran people who mm-hmm. have, you know, upheld it, it, it gets close to, to doing that. There, there's one part of this article that I wanted to highlight that I, I felt like I needed to address. I'm reading here, it says, while many in classical music are working to push the art form beyond its European roots, the genre arrived in the United States as an import from the old world. You see, the framing of this not only is incorrect, but it perpetuates the problems that we're trying to solve when it comes to classical music. When you say, uh, while many in classical music are working to push the art form from its European roots, you're taking that phrase classical music and using it in that colonial sort of way. Week after week after week, we talk about American classical as something different than European classical. Mm -hmm. And I think the, that conversation, you know, maybe that is why uh, Western European orchestral music is sort of ubiquitous to a lot of the cultures around Minnesota. But I, I just think that has to be pointed out because little phrases like that are how we take a couple steps back in our progressive conversations when it comes to how we treat classical music. It may be splitting hairs to some people, but yeah. I think it's important to note. The, I mean, it's drawing... It has data to back up a lot of these claims in this article, and it's making some interesting points, things that I never would have thought of. One parting shot, though. Let me, let me just ask you this before we move on. Do you agree in the part that it's the cold, that we have six months of <laughs> kind of crappy cold weather? I don't guess I get that. I'd be, because if anything, I'm going to stay home if it's, it's cold. I'm not going to the concert hall if it's a foot of snow outside and it's negative 10 degrees. But I don't know. I don't, what, I, I don't, I don't know if I get that part. There's a meme that I saw years ago, and it has, you know, the Minneapolis skyline. It's like a postcard. Yeah. And it's, you know, you can see that it's 
there's steam coming up off of all the buildings. There's ice and snow in the foreground and all that. And it says, Minneapolis, come for the culture. Stay because your car won't start. <laughs> <laughs> Which is how I ended up here. All right. But, well, um, no, I, it makes some really interesting points. But at, the, but at the same time, I think that there's, there's ways that we can immediately counter yeah, all of these points. Yeah. And and again, not to mention that it's just paving directly over non this is called triloquy, non-white influences yeah. on the local cultural scene. It's centering around Lutheran culture and Scandinavian culture and that sort of thing and I don't know. I'm 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 looking at that dust in the corners right now, but you gave it a natural, so I, I, I think that's good enough. I'll, I'll give it my own little natural there. Well, if there's any musician who is celebrated, certainly here in the Twin Cities, it's the artist formerly known as Prince, mm-hmm. the man known to many as Prince. If you know, if we're gonna keep it trill here, sometimes you know, as a person who grew up in a Michael Jackson household, it could feel like the praise is overbearing mm-hmm. you know not to diminish the genius of prince of course but i i, I guess just w- what i want to emphasize is the extent to which he is celebrated he he is not a back conversation he is king mm-hmm. you know uh, certainly as as uh as far as most people are concerned and he wasn't mentioned in this article at all i think i think that's notable Truth. and if we're going to be pointing at the midwest as this cultural center and you don't mention one of the great composers from the area hmm uh, I'm, my, my head has turned a little bit of sideways so we're gonna honor prince here on the trilogy podcast with a piano arrangement of one of his uh most famous songs this is william haviland playing the piano and uh it's his rendition rendition of nothing compares to you a lot of people know it as a Sinead o'connor song but mm-hmm. it is a prince composition that's right and um they both did an incredible version of it as did william haviland so we're going to listen to him play it on piano here for a little bit as we transition into our second movie. song I, and i hate to even ask you know the Sinead o'connor version versus the prince version because that does exist i'm, I'm not going to do that but i am going to say Sinead o'connor did it mm-hmm. when she did it i mean every now and again i'll just return not only to the song but to the music video just how um plain in a good way it is maybe plain isn't the word i should use but just simple or to the point how direct the music video is that's right just Sinead O'Connor singing to you, you know, and 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 giving this message, giving it up. Wow, what I see now now I want to listen to the song. Well, we'll we'll play it after we're done recording. And by, damn, what an incredible composition. And by the end of it, she has a tear yeah. coming down. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they asked her about that, and she's like, I didn't plan on that. That was she said that was disarming for her. Yeah, because I mean, when you're singing that song in the moment and yeah. you can sing it well, yeah. so you know you giving it up. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. So every now and again, I think about it, if I had another not even a whole octave maybe another fifth on my range oh y'all wouldn't get me to stop singing i'm gonna say 
<laughs> I'd be sticking all in this microphone. <laughs> on that one, she ate. And I want to let me ask you. Come on, Twitter, giving you cultural. See, <laughs> that's one of the things I take away from it. And I want to know yes, when yes. did we go from she slayed to she ate? When did that transition happen? I mean, I think people still slay, mm. but when somebody ate, I mean, that's how they is. It's the same as I would say when when somebody ate. That's even more than body. That you know, mm. oh, she ate. Mm. <laughs> but that could go for you know your outfit. Your, you know, your anything, maybe, maybe even your musical selections. Like we're about to get in here into the second movement. With Let's we do. are in the second movement, where Scott and I are going to take the second ending by sharing uh, some music that we've been spending some time with. I'm going to uh, get us started. So let me let me think in my mind real quick. So okay, we're in the future. So as y'all are listening to this, I am in. Uh, I'm back in New York City with the American Composers Orchestra because our very own orchestra. Uh, has a, a concert that's going down in Carnegie Hall. There's all sorts of really um, incredible music on the program with an overall theme of uh, awareness around the environment, pieces of music that um, speak to different aspects of just global warming or recycling or uh, those sorts of things. So uh, among the pieces on the concert is one called Renewal by composer Viet Quang. I actually uh, had a, a great opportunity to, um, to speak with him uh, in conjunction with a project with ACO. And uh, I learned a lot about, a, again, a piece of music of his called Renewal. So the idea is that it's this three movement percussion concerto with each concerto talking about different forms of renewable energy. So there's a wind movement. Uh, but I think the opening huh. movement uh, deals with hydro deals with water and uh, in the opening of this first movement to sort of play on water the percussion instruments that are used are crystal glasses so you'll hear uh cheersing among the soloists uh, in the very beginning of the piece And when I talked with uh, Viet about this piece, one of the things he was telling me, it's also in the program notes, that it's sort of like a, a celebration at the beginning. You know, you mm -hmm. often, mm -hmm. you know, cheers after a concert while you're celebrating. Well, they're celebrating at the very start. I think I think that's heavy. I think that's heavy, but I've, in a in a good way. I've got a few questions for you. So, are those glasses filled to levels to make certain tones? They are. That I yeah. Okay. I've listened to a few recordings and they sound similar. So, okay. yeah. What happens if you get a little overzealous and you break that's a, one? That's a part of being a great musician. You know, you can't be on stage and break a guitar string, right? So that means you need to calm down <laughs> and, <laughs> and play the instrument gently. All I'm saying is that the people who do this piece need to get some sort of a, a contract going with a, like Riedel or some really sure. well-known glassmaker. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. So yeah, so the, the opening movement is hydro, the middle movement is wind, and the last movement is solar. So here's, here's a little bit of the opening of the solar movement to give you a sampling.
We spend a lot of time with violin concertos and piano concertos. There's something about the percussion concerto that's really novel and really fun, on top of the fact that it's a, a piece of music that is contemporary and talks to a contemporary issue, you know, like a, a renewable energy and recycling. I think it's it's really incredible. Uh, the American Composers Orchestra is performing it with sandbox percussion, uh, but what we just uh, listened to uh, was the epic percussion quartet with the University of Texas Wind Ensemble. Cool piece of music. I saw you grinning as, as we yeah, were listening to that. Yeah, it, because it takes a lot for me to have a piece of music actually turn my head toward it. Mm -hmm. And that happened here in that second one, uh, the, the, the last movement that you played here. Folks, you, you have to go and check out this video and watch the soloists. Mm-hmm. It'll be in the description. It's, yeah, it's amazing to watch. The, it's far more interesting to watch them solo than it is to watch a violinist or mm -hmm. pianist go. Y'all heard Scott. Y'all heard him say that <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, so, and and maybe Scott, now that you know uh, the name Viet Cuong, C U O N G, you know, get get some of that music into Dallas mm -hmm. and, and on the national mm -hmm. radio. There, there are audiences that would love spending some time with those sounds, especially in the evening when you're on the radio. Yeah, I think so. All right. And well, plus, it's great to watch. I'm just hypnotic to watch them work. Yeah, Renewal by Viet Cuong. All right, Scott, what you got for this? Second movement. I would like to acknowledge the birth of Peter Tosh. Uh, when this comes out on the 19th, that would have been, uh, he was born in 1947. That was his birthday. Uh, for those who don't know, Peter Tosh is a reggae artist who got his start in the Whalers with uh, Bob Marley, wrote a lot of, of music with Bob Marley. But in my experience, he's an artist that a lot of people will confuse with Bob Marley. Hmm. You know, they'll hear a, a, a track and just assume that's Bob or Ziggy Marley, one of the two, when in fact it's actually Peter. Reggae is the most beautiful thing. <laughs> it is the most beautiful classical music among the most beautiful classical musics. You can't help but to just get into, it's called the bubble, right? right. That, that backbeat. You mm -hmm. can't help but to sort of ride that bubble a little bit. And oh, it just feels so good. And everything's going to be all right. Um, he wrote a piece called Legalize It. Mm -hmm. Very important, of important piece Some of brand. work. But um, I, I really have to ask a question here at, at what point did you think that that was ketchup shuby? Because that's how it made it into the. I notes was, here. I was, I was ketchup. loading up. I, look, you know, speaking of <laughs> speaking of legalizing it <laughs> on Excuse this me. on this double recording day that we have, you know, you know, I, I need something. I needed something during the dinner break. Okay, <laughs> so I looked at the screen and I saw ketchup shuby. <laughs> <laughs> but what is but but now that we're here, what is catchy Shuby? What is he talking I was gonna, about? I was going to ask you if you if you had any ideas. No, I don't. Tell no. me. Okay, so in in some, it's context in a lot of instances, but in many ways, it's uh, killing time, doing nothing. Hmm. You know, just hanging catchy out. Shuby. Okay. But more often than not, it's a um, 
a romantical, sexy. Oh, a little, kind of little catchy shoe. Can do a little catchy shoe. <laughs> mm. Okay, okay, I'm into it. Yeah. So, um, uh, a happy birthday, uh, uh, acknowledging the birthday birthday of Peter Tosh, and please don't confuse him with Bob. It's really too bad the way he died too. How was that? Well, he got he got home off tour, and there was a a gang waiting at his house. And oh they, damn! They jumped him and dragged him inside, thinking they were going to get money, and he didn't have. Well, he didn't have the kind of money they thought yeah. he was going to have on him, and they tortured the guy. Oh my god! Oh my god! Well, rest in power to to Peter Tosh. Goodness gracious! Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Well. um, in the third movement today, you know, where we're talking about these classical musics today, you know, from these different perspectives, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about that because uh, today's guest is Asher Lobb. Uh, he has gotten, he's a, an electric violinist who's gotten really good at performing classical musics in different styles for different cultural communities and has made a living. So, you know, he'll entertain at the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah. Mm -hmm. He's done uh, some Indian sort of Bollywood style parties. The He does the the rock sort of uh, Trans-Siberian orchestra style stuff. And uh, it's it's done well for him. Um, I'll, I'll read a little bit from his bio here. It says, Asher began classical violin training at the tender age of two and had already performed with the Buffalo Philharmonic by age 13. His experience in trans-genre improvisation has led him to a career as a soloist in demand performing all over the place throughout New York. We met on this sort of uh, virtual uh, podcast connector uh, sort of uh, website thing. I'm sorry that I'm forgetting what it's called, but someone said, well, there's some interesting people who uh, might be interested uh, in being on the Trilogy podcast over there. And, you know, Asher connected with me. So I'm glad that we got to um, have a conversation. The piece of music that uh, I'm going to use to transition into our conversation is called Zalima. It's a a Hindi instrumental song and a really great example of what Asher La brings to the table when he's entertaining and uh, using technology and his instrument to uh, you know, do something different in this world of so-called classical music. So here's a little bit of Zalima as performed by Asher Lobb to get us into my conversation with them. Hope y'all enjoy. So the so Zalima, uh, the context. I mean, honestly, it's it's a Bollywood cover. It's not an original. Uh, it was just uh, it was something that 
I, I, I have Bollywood, I have a bunch of South Asian uh, clients, expats, whatever. They throw on these big productions and, and they, they asked me to come in to do different performances. And this is, so I listened very carefully to the songs that they, they enjoy. And Zalima is one of those kind of, uh, was like top 40s in the Bollywood list. Uh, so I thought I'd, I'd cover that. And uh, I, I don't know. I was just, I guess I was th- feeling goofy at the time. And um, I, it was like a kind of a low, low-ish budget music video. And I was thinking, how can I be creative? So uh, I had all these different outfits and I just, I came on and I, I just superimposed, like I shot the same, I just basically kept the camera on the same position and I shot the, the song, uh, repeated about three times and three, four times. And that's how I superimposed it pretty much. Did you have uh, an affinity toward Bollywood or, or Indian pop music or classical music? Or was this just something that happened because of your client base or th- that part of your client base anyway? So I, I, honestly, I, I don't remember choosing Bollywood so much as Bollywood clients choosing me and then me responding very enthusiastically. Uh, and beginning to produce uh, more and more Bollywood music because I saw that it was a pretty natural transition, and from from like the Middle Eastern background that I had with respect to music, and I mean I lived in Israel for for a year and uh, played a lot of the, a lot of that type of music, and my classical background. So it was a pretty pretty simple transition for me, and there was so much enthusiasm enthusiasm among those crowds of people like I had never seen in other groups and it just made me so happy like it just filled my heart my yeah I, with just joy knowing that there are people that really enjoy the violin the way people enjoy vocals which seems to be the common denominator these days um with like major acts major performances so yeah i just started venturing in that direction a lot of people a, a lot of people uh, you know and I'll, I'll put myself in that you know may uh approach uh, engaging different styles of music, especially ones that are so uh, closely tied with culture, just sort of being careful around that with phrases like cultural appropriation, you know, <laughs> be, being a thing in, in, in this 21st century. Have you ever um, had to engage that conversation? How do you how do you think about uh, the relationship between culture and the music that you're marketing and offering to people? You mean specifically res- with respect to in my case, not being actually South Asian. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're very eloquent. Um, So I've had a couple of people just sort of a couple of uh, just South Asian guests come up to me at events, concerts, whatever. And and ask me, it's kind of like inspect me. (laughs) (laughs) You're not Indian. (laughs) And and, uh, like, I don't feel at all offended because it's I've, I've never, ever felt slighted or, or or offended or insulted by anybody in that capacity. And there's I, I don't know if it's there's more of an enthusiasm for me because uh, because I'm coming from like North America and I'm and I'm embracing their culture um, and I and I'm and I and I'm enjoying and loving their culture. Uh, so I, I don't I don't feel like like there's any hate going on even among other other south asian artists i I feel like there's appreciation from them as well and uh i'm coming from the vantage point of i'm covering everything i'm an instrumentalist and i'm i'm doing hip-hop uh i'm doing you know i'm doing israeli i'm doing i'm playing you know music for you know uh you know 
again, South Asian. And then I haven't, I haven't covered every aspect of every type of type of music, every type of genre, but I'm getting there. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That was one of the things I was really impressed to see on your website. Not only have you engaged Bollywood, but you market yourself as as someone who can engage uh, Jewish and Israeli aesthetics. You've already mentioned hip hop. You know, you have fashion shows uh, listed on on your website. Is there a, a through line? How have you been able to just cultivate the expertise in so many different arenas with your violin? Uh, well, you know, I, I think I've just sort of responded to the demand. So mm. if there's, it's, there's been demand for me to be in fashion shows, I don't see myself as a fashionista, but <laughs> I, I just, uh, I just sort of adapted accordingly. And I, I guess, um, I guess everything's a, a little bit of a learning curve. And, and when you're, when you're asked to do something in a certain context, you, you know, you re- you respond by just doing your best and and kind of learning from other people who are who are in that specific arena. You know, I I watch other people, other performers who have done fashion shows as well. There are other violinists out there, so kind of watch them and you know watch uh, Bollywood performers, and mm-hmm. that's pretty much what I do. Yeah, responding to demand. I, I like that phrase. Well, I'll I'll pull on that thread uh, a little later, but let's go all the way back to the beginning. So like many violinists of, of many genres, you started very young. What was the original plan? Surely you didn't envision your current career when you were, you know, nine years old, maybe even a teenager. What did you have in mind for yourself? If anything, <laughs> I had in mind being a physical therapist. Oh, really? When I was a kid, I was not, uh, but that's pretty much what was told to me. Like, you want to be a physical therapist. That's what you should be. You love physical therapy. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. Mom, <laughs> dad, cousins, and uncles and siblings. You know, it's like, okay, stable job, good, good, good income. Um, it, yeah, cool. Probably. I happen to have a nursing degree, by the way. Um, I, you know, I did not anticipate being uh, a, a professional musician, uh, but I do have the training. And so it's sort of like a no brainer. And the demand was there because I had the training because I had not only a classical background, not only years year of training since the age of two, um, and, you know, competitions, uh, Greater Buffalo Youth Spring Orchestra, Greater Buffalo Youth Orchestra as a child, and, and then like NISPA competitions, so on and so forth, weekly private lessons. It was sort of like, okay, I just hit the ground running when I moved to New York to go to college, work my way through college earning on the side, you know, doing events on the weekends and it sort of evolved from there. So, 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 uh, when, so when did you realize that being a professional musician was going to work beyond just the side thing or the extra income? Once I was already a professional musician. <laughs> I guess really what I, what I mean to ask is, uh, when did you, um, you know, quit the so-called day job? I mean, what, what, what was the, the trigger for you to jump all the way in? Well, honestly, once I was already in the day job, I was thinking, hmm, uh, <laughs> well, uh, the day job isn't paying as much as the the night job, mm-hmm. i.e. the, you know, music. So, uh, you know, I got a, I got a mortgage to pay, got a family to support. So it, as my wife says, it pretty much chose me. Wow. Um, wow. I went against the grain, really. I, I, I 
it was a bit disappointing to family members. And, and I understand. I don't blame them. Bit of a risk being in, in, in the music industry. I mean, say say more about that. Uh, it, it seems like, you know, family would be proud that this thing that seems impossible is something that you've conquered, you know, making a living as a musician. They're, they're proud of what I've done. They've always been uh, a support with respect to whatever I love and enjoy. You know, they'll always appreciate me and support me in that respect. But uh, they very much discouraged me for pretty much a very long time until they realized that there was no point in discouraging me anymore because I was already in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. So that, that was tough knowing that I'm, I'm going full throttle ahead with really no support. Um, but at least, at least prior to having gone full throttle, but, but now that I'm in it, it's like, okay, you know, I chose this, uh, I find a lot of joy in it. It's a hell of a lot of work. It's just like a full-time job. It is a full-time job. And, but it's a full-time job. <clears throat> That's my true calling and passion and, and something I, I, I don't think I would have taken a risk with in any other capacity, any other, uh, profession to, you know, to do so. So I think that's pretty much the message that, okay, I, I guess I, I chose, I chose the right path. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to a phrase that you used earlier, responding to demand. Uh, there's a lot happening in the more uh, traditional wing of the uh, classical music industry, the Western classical music industry, talking about diversity, talking about uh, transitioning and transforming programming. Are you uh, engaged in any of those conversations? Does that world impact your world anymore? Uh, sorry, uh, can you just clarify, like transitioning from like one genre to another or is it what? I guess transitioning from Beethoven and Mozart to living composers or, or sounds that we don't typically hear is, is that a, are those conversations a part of your world or is your engagement of the violin completely separate from, you know, what's happening in the concert hall at this point? Um, I hope I'm answering your question uh, in the way that you're, you're kind of looking for. Uh, I, and if not, you just reroute me, but I uh, just having, having been raised, traditional in the traditional classical uh realm of, mu of music of education in every capacity you could think of up until uh junior high uh senior years in, in high school mm -hmm. um the the conversation of uh shifting from Beethoven, uh schubert whatever uh right. beethoven bach to contemporary uh, is something i brought up uh with my teachers and and they were either i'm going to say they they were unable to embark on that that in that direction uh they weren't able to provide me any any sort of like they they weren't interested in being part of the conversation they were all traditional kind of traditionally trained uh and my most my latest teacher uh thomas halpin who uh he's a contemporary of, uh, he's a student of ivan Zalamian, and he and uh contemporary with uh he went to to juilliard with with uh Itak Proman and my aunt Sheila who's in the Boston Symphony and and I, I found it kind of kind of painful that he wasn't able to to have that conversation with me when, when I needed it most like I needed I needed to like uh learn about improv and about jazz like that's something that I had a craving for and uh it wasn't until I I hit the New York scene that 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 this blending between the genres and merging the past with the present uh, 
came to the forefront and it was very much relevant in, in my career in my life and so that's something that came way too late i think i think if i if it if i was educated or if i had that conversation with other peers uh if it had existed in upstate new york uh i might have even you know been, been in, in a more um advanced position musically uh skill wise uh, today um but 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 what I the skills that I have today are are pretty advanced. So I, I guess I guess I shouldn't be too resentful <laughs> of my past. <laughs> I I don't know if I answered the question. No, but perfectly. Try to per- that perfectly. Again. And it's 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 really interesting. You know, I wonder if you'll speak to again what you were looking for. You know, the conversation is is one thing. You know, expanding the repertoire and what you can do with your instrument. It sounds like you were looking for. Uh, training when it comes to improvisation training when it when it comes to you know what what you do today do, am, am i getting that right 100 percent. and and that training uh has unfortunately had to have been at this point it's i haven't had any formal training uh unfortunately in improv i've taken the skills from classical which may have been enough and then i've just been listening and listening and listening and playing with all these pros who are way better than me in improv uh, guys have like gone on tour with like Frank Sinatra, all the, all the, the heavy hitters and, you know, play Broadway and stuff like that. And I've just been learning over the last 20 years on the scene from them. And then going home and like, <laughs> got a tail between my legs, like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta work harder. Uh, I gotta learn my standards. And, and, uh, I, I've just, I just found like a happy balance, um, where I'm not playing, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well in the chick career realm of music. Sure. <laughs> rest uh, for me, rest in peace. Well, yeah. Yes. Uh, but it, but everything's a work in progress. So, but ragtime doesn't do it for me. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that was the best my my teacher could do, and it was reading sheet music. So I'm not one to stay within the lines. Sure, sure. And I know, you know, as as a classically trained musician myself, I, I think, you know, we all have those moments when we go to a gig or we go to a recording session and we have to do more than we were trained to do. It it's it seems like, you know, having to reach outside really gave you the drive to gain the skills that, you know, uh, may have benefited you beyond what it would look like if you did have those formal improvisation skills in school. It, it seems like that hunger is a, as an essential ingredient in what you've been able to build for yourself. Yeah. And honestly, I think that hunger is somewhat related to, uh, being surrounded by extreme talent, uh, and just being honored to, I, I, I always feel honored to, to play with people who are, I just think way better than me, uh, in, in improvisation in, in jazz improvisation. And they respect me for my, you know, for my unique, like violin chops that I guess, you know, they're not playing like a saxophone isn't playing double stops. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not kind of playing these rhythmic arpeggios the, the same way I am, but, but I'm just sort of in awe of, of what they're doing. And I just want to throw out that I, I have deep respect for your uh, classical music skills and your, your tone. <laughs> and, and so it's re- really cool to see what you can do. Thanks. You're, you're, you're being more polite to classical music than I tend to be, but, but that, that's <laughs> I appreciate it. Are there, are there, are there areas in which your uh, background in nursing and that original love, even if it was superimposed on you a physical therapy, do, do those worlds or anything that you've learned in, in those worlds cross over into your music making at all? Well, there is a common, there is a common theme of, of, of healing. 
and mm. uh, you know, medicinal healing and, and music therapy is is a is a thing in in medicine, and it's, it's a growing thing, yeah. um, which I have deep respect for. And uh, especially during the pandemic, when I had many fans DM me and just comment uh, about how my music is healing. And I really kind of didn't didn't believe it for a while, but I just keep hearing it, uh, and and it's it's satisfying to 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 kind of draw a connection between what I'm doing with respect to my fans, uh, some of whom have cancer, lost a loved one, are in pain, emotional pain, whatever it is, and and, and healing them emotionally, which which plays a major role on physical health also, mm-hmm. and kind of drawing that connection to 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 par- that parallel to my. Uh, my BSN, my, my nursing degree, my, my two other degrees in the sciences, but also, I mean, it's not like there, there are other reasons why, why I have those degrees. I, I, I have a, my own, uh, history, uh, my own skeletons with respect to, to, to health challenges. And uh, I don't want to bore my listeners who are probably <laughs> checking out this podcast, but in a nutshell, like it's, it, you know, it runs pretty deep, you know, with adrenal insufficiency six, seven years ago and, uh, inflammatory conditions. So, so that's something that I've actually uh, struggled with, um, especially as a musician uh, playing the violin, which is really a strain on the back. So when you have a condition like mine, it's it's you got to be really careful. Yeah, I think I did read that you had to put the violin down for a little while because of some of those physical challenges. I, I wonder if you'll talk about what being in the midst of that challenge looked like and then getting back to the place where you could perform again. Well, it was a little bit like Lord of the Rings, which I've been watching the last few weeks. We got the whole Jeff Bezos half a billion dollar series out there, which is wow. I recommend. Um, But it's like, you know, the darkness, the ring, the Sauron. Like, that's honestly when I think of Sauron, I think of like six, seven years ago being stuck in a bed, pretty much a vegetable and wondering how could this possibly happen to me? My life is so smooth up until, I mean, within within reason uh, up until now. And it's like, why are all these terrible things happening to me? And I, and then I just sort of like took a different perspective and uh, I thought, you know, it, it's not, not everything is like, you know, Sauron's out to get me. Like, like somebody else, somebody's like got is in cahoots to like screw me and to make my life miserable after like this reasonably happy middle-class lifestyle. And now I'm like, I got to end up, you know, I, I just took a different perspective that I'm going to take control of my life. And mm-hmm. this is not somebody, somebody who's evil out there or, or, or God or anything else like that. It's just, I, I you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to get to the root of the problem. I'm going to fix it. And I did. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I hope to, I hope that that's like a, uh, serves as some form of inspiration <clears throat> to, to folks out there, uh, to the many fans that I have who are in uh, very troublesome situations they've shared with me and uh, troubling, I'm going to say, um, may, maybe could serve as, as some as some hope uh, for them that, you know, when you're in a really dark place that you, you can, that there are opportunities to emerge from it uh, if, if there's a will and there's enough. I had I had the will I had to to, to fit uh, the will to figure it out. I did a whole lot of textbook reading. I had the not the you know nursing degree and and I, I looked unconventionally. I, I looked to unconventional paths to to getting better and it, and it worked for me. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you're a Buddhist, but you sound like one. You know, taking life in your own hands and taking that poison and turning it into medicine. That's that's really beautiful. And 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 what your career has bloomed into, you know, is clear evidence of of your dedication and and your you know your unwillingness to just let it be as, as you know as it were 
That's really kind of you. I, maybe that's where the Bollywood came in. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. So beyond playing the violin and having good ears and that sort of thing, it seems like there are so many other skills that you've had to engage in building this career. We've already talked about this uh, superimposed, you know, self trio video that you've done that now I feel like I need to figure out how to do. But <laughs> I'm sure there's sound mixing involved in your work and, you know, learning about microphones. I wonder if you could talk about some of those uh, non performance aspects of your work and, and how you gain those skills. Well, uh, this work in the studio uh, kind of becomes more and more necessary uh, as the bills keep climbing uh, with the productions, and and some of my productions have just been way too expensive, and I just I, I, I've been forced to to like learn production myself over the years, and it's been a pleasure doing that, but but it's like with the amount of content that I'm producing, it's it's literally become a necessity. Otherwise, you just go broke yeah. unless you got somebody putting the bill for you. Uh, but but something like Zalima, if you're interested in anybody who's interested in music video production, that's like a low budget, really cool uh, way to kind of engage fans, listeners. Um, I, I literally, like you mentioned, superimposed three different videos onto one backdrop, which is it's a real backdrop. It wasn't like a green screen, but pretty much holding the camera in the same position and marking your places uh, and and shooting the video, the music video three different times using the same produce. Um, mixed and mastered audio and that's essentially how i did it and um i might do it again because uh, you just brought me back to it i did that a few years ago and really enjoyed it yeah it was that one of those COVID productions or did it come before that uh pre-covid i believe oh wow okay because of yeah. course everyone learned how to work their their uh cell phone video camera and that sort of thing when we were all stuck indoors that, that that's why i ask <laughs> oh and that's a good question because um i mean i've been i've been learning the tech uh all along just because when you're when you're kind of uh when you're not uh strapped to a label mm -hmm. i'm gonna say thank god at the moment you you uh you are forced to expand your skills and, and learn many different uh, many different types of uh, like production skills. And, and one example of that happening during COVID when I ramped up my live streaming, and I'm sure many people did, which mm -hmm. maybe you did also, unless you've been doing this for longer, the, uh, the, the live streaming software OBS, uh, which is like, it's a software you can use on a computer. Those, those of you who don't know, you, you know, you hook up your microphone and you send it through universal audio, I, I, my universal audio, uh, preamp and then from there into my camera and from there into my uh my m1 mac or my laptop which goes through my it's like the fifth step in the roads like at obs software which allows me to communicate with zoom or um or like skype or facebook so i was live streaming concerts and performances doing that annoyingly complicated rig mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yep I don't know why they can't simplify it, but but that would be another example of where I had to work out the tech endlessly, and there were tons of glitches. And there's and then there's the latency of like twenty seconds. Sure, um, pretty painful. Yep, <laughs> it's. I don't know what you're doing differently, but you well, sound great. What you're making me think about is, you know, I I started so I transitioned away from uh, the stage. I made a career as an orchestral bassoonist and decided to transition away to you know make some changes, starting in radio and then doing other things. Um, I have 
you know, I, I remember toward the beginning of that journey, I would go to, let's say, Guitar Center and, you know, see some preamp or see something that costs a thousand dollars. And I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll never need anything like that. It's gotten all the way to the point where I'll go to stores like that and I don't see <laughs> what what I need. They're, they're top of the line stuff as well. Actually, I need eight inputs and you don't have anything like it's, it's just interesting how all of this builds and, and, and builds on on each other. I, I wish, you know, someone had you know, I have, I don't know, a part of me wishes I had the opportunity to have taken a class in college or, or something about all of this stuff. But, you know, learning, yeah. learning on the fly is good, too. I, I wonder if you're engaged in, in education at all. Are, are you doing any teaching or is it just performing? So uh, I've been asked many, many times to teach, to do, and I've done a few private lessons. Um, I, I, I focus on performance, uh, honestly, because I moved out of teaching in order to do that. Hmm. So I sort of felt like if I'm going to be teaching, well, why don't I just go back to teaching in the department of education where everything was, where I pretty much had a stable career and job. Um, I, I didn't have to work for myself. I guess the counter argument would be, um, working for myself is, is the pleasure that I, ha that I have. Like that is the thing that I, that I latch onto is just the freedom. But, um, so I, I, I um, I, I have people on folks online constantly commenting, asking me to, to assist with that. I did just post a, a, um, like a, not a tutorial, but a comparison, uh, between, uh, a glary instrument and a, and a professional violin, my violin, mm -hmm. and sort of comparing, contrasting like the differences and the tonal differences. Um, so, so that I just posted and that's an education oriented type of video. I, I, I'm, I'm, I've dabbled in it. I haven't, I, I, right now I'm, like I mentioned, I'm focused more on, in, uh, in live performances, but it, it's something that I could see myself very quickly transitioning into. Yeah. Because it seems like your perspective and experiences are, are needed. Maybe there's a violin teacher who has a student like you were, you know, when you were in high school asking certain questions. Well, how would you advise uh, those music teachers to expand what they're offering for their students? Is it just rooted in being able to uh, teach improvisation or is, is, is there more to it? Yeah, uh, I I think that, and it's not so easy as a teacher uh, to to think to look towards contemporary music as a means to inspiring youth uh, or a means to to inspiring uh, students who are looking to really expand uh, and 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 to learn um, when when it's when it's pretty tough for them. I mean, it's, it's the first fifteen years of, of education in violin was frustrating for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, doing etudes is not the most fun, and I don't really look. I'd rather play outside than do stuff like that. But it's like if I was playing like a Justin Timberlake song, something that's like it, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's melodically kind of more appealing. It's something I could relate to more. It's sort of like playing the, the drums or the guitar, something like all my friends would want to do. Then that's I, I could see that as more of a motivation. And, and I remember. Um, you know, I went, when I was a senior in high school, I played, like, I got up in front of 500 people, um, and, and I did a performance, um, like it was like my big ruah, like my big, like climactic performance before I, before I left to college, I played Schindler's list of all songs. And I'm like, I did that. <laughs> that was it was like in retrospect and actually when I, and like, I got this big standing ovation, um, which I was just like, felt so good at the time in retrospect. I'm like, Oh, like I, I'm like embarrassed that I did that, that I chose that song 
and that I got a standing ovation for as silly of a production as, as that. Um, and when I, w- when I went outside, like all my friends, like they kind of flooded me in the hallway, like, Hey, you did such a great job. It was awesome. But why did you choose such a sad song? And I'm like, it didn't even occur to me the, all that I'm saying that laying that out, just the context is if I had, if I had spent time learning like some popular music, there would have been, that would have been something that they really could have related to. And that I, it would have been more appropriate for a crowd like that, a young crowd. And I just, it just came about it wrong. Cause I was just coming from this really outdated perspective. Um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't mean, I don't mean uh, to like kind of, uh, I'm not, compl- I'm not looking to complain about my teachers. What, I, what I'm trying, trying to do is I'm trying to just explain that if I were to, to go back in time, I would have probably emphasized the importance of, you know, merging classical with, with playing some, some, some music that I actually was listening to and my friends were listening to. And I think that I probably would have been a better musician because of it. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and, and again, I'll, I'll repeat myself. You're being much more polite than I, I tend to be because from my perspective, you're really describing the issue of the uh, orchestral industry, the orchestral ecosystem, you know, being uh, more uh, dedicated to tradition than innovating for the sake of connecting with more people and, and, and more diverse audiences. And in your bio, it says that uh, you're working to influence societal norms and conventional thinking about musical performance. I wonder if you'll speak more to that now that we're on this this topic. What, what are these conventional ways of thinking that you're trying to influence? Yeah, and I want to thank you for for bringing that up because I actually it wouldn't have even occurred to me. It's this is probably one of the most important points that it's to influence societal norms on both sides of the spectrum. Mm. It's to influence, it's to merge the past with the present as best that I can. So, so it's painful to me that that I that there's a whole world of like traditional classical that is disinterested in electronic hip hop and and vice versa, like you know, you guys got to come together and I'm really trying to, um, to cover as many genres as possible. Cause I believe that, that, that the violin lends itself to so many different areas of music and it doesn't have to be limited to, to one subgenre and, or like just hip hop, just EDM, just, you know, uh, just classical. And, and I think by, by merging them together, I, I really want to attract listeners and, and help listeners expand their kind of preconceived notions of what they need to listen to by the major labels mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and what, what, what does, what is cool, what's hip, what's, what's interesting, what, what their friends listen to. And, and it's like, okay, like expand your, your, expand your, your tastes into this realm and, you know, electronic music, uh, Atlantis, did, I don't know if you heard Atlantis. That's my most recent, uh, original single. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, the kind of the, the vibe behind it, that and neon dreams, probably my biggest single is that it, it it's taken, uh, it's taken, it, it's, it's a melodic appealing kind of, uh, melody that, that people can relate to people who aren't into classical, but at the same time, it's still got that sophisticated edge. And I kind of hope that people appreciate that a little more. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So um, as we, you know, begin to to wrap up here, I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are on 
influencing the norm versus just moving on from it. I, I have a lot of collaborators and a lot of musicians who I really look up to, you know, they say a part of, you know, evolution is leaving what was old behind. Do you think from your perspective, is, is it still worth it to try to, you know, get the larger classical industry to see more of, of the world or, is it time for us to just divest from that and and enjoy our own perspectives and experiences with music? Um, I don't think it's my mission. I don't think it's like my main. I, I mean, I don't think it's my primary mission. I think that there are so many more people out there uh, listening to very much watered down music. <laughs> um, okay. Th that I, I I'm I, I yearn for them a little more. <laughs> Let's just say, you know, I, I kind of hope like if, if it were between kind of convincing somebody who, who who has a passion for Bach and Beethoven to shift a little more into modern versus the, the opposite, I would choose the I would choose the latter because there I think that there's much more to offer um, musically in the classical realm. Um, and that doesn't discount the value of of popular music. I'm just saying that that. These people aren't musically dead. The people that are listening to Bach and Beethoven, there's there's plenty of beauty there. And there's sure. plenty of of uh, I don't know appreciation for music there. I don't know. And there's plenty of crossover. I mean, your your renewed takes on Vivaldi that I've listened to are pretty cool. I mean, if if I if if I could say so. So there there is that possibility of you know hanging on to part of the tradition. It just requires, as as I tend to say, more of that seasoning, more of that contemporary flavor that can grab the ear of someone who may not necessarily uh, hear Vivaldi under any other circumstances. Yeah. Vanessa may inspired that. Uh, I mean, she's just absolutely brilliant. I mean, she's just a, a musical genius and um, uh, I don't think anybody could really do it better than her. Honestly, <laughs> Absolute virtuoso. How can yeah. folks uh, learn uh, more about you, buy your music, maybe even book you where, where can they do all that? Yeah, so uh, actualab.com is my website. People book me on Instagram uh, whenever I am able to filter through the DMs. And uh, yeah, my website, send like a contact form. Uh, Asherlab is, I think I'm the only Asherlab in the country. So just Google my name. I am on all major platforms, Instagram, Facebook. I just went live yesterday. Uh, Instagram and TikTok, I post daily. Twitter, um, where else? Um, all my original music. Is on, and original productions are on Spotify, Deezer, iTunes, Amazon, all major platforms. You're, YouTube's are all my music videos. You're you're outside. People people can find you. <laughs> yes, no excuse, guys. Say hello, please. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, your latest single, Atlantis. So um, I, I, maybe we can phase out with a little bit uh, of that. How about you offer some uh, context on what this piece of music is, what what the inspirations are, and what you hope for it. Sure. Uh, well, Atlanta is, is a, a labor of love or one of my original uh, pro uh, instrumental productions. I haven't I haven't really uh, produced any vocals yet in, in, in any of these songs yet. Uh, that's the key. I'm do, doing two collaborations coming up. Stay tuned for that. Uh, but but Atlantis is essentially somewhat like Neon Dreams in that it, it sort of tells at least it tells me the story of the last 20 years of my life. And it's a reminder that there's, you know, with the ominous intro leading up to this climactic rise and then this cyclical ominous drop back to a, 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 a once again, a, the final climax, the 
representative of the cycles of life and and the highs and the lows that we inevitably face, um, whether it be COVID or cancer or adrenal insufficiency, whatever it is, um, a loss of a loved one, a divorce, you can whatever you want to call it. Pains, uh, you know, the, the the painful experiences can be extremely painful, can be extremely low, and the highs can be extremely high. And uh, it's sort of incumbent upon us to be as productive citizens of society. Just it, it it's it's the most I'm going to say it's useful to be aware of the highs and lows, and to realize that the lows don't necessarily just remain low, and the highs don't necessarily remain high. Life is cyclical, and to not get too caught up in the highs and lows is is something of value and. And uh, that's kind of what Atlantis is, is about to me. And I hope that people sort of can, I, I'm going to say, gain their own uh, interpretation from a song that is, in fact, instrumental, and I'm not telling them what to think. got some juice in it mm-hmm. i would say that's an asher lob original called atlantis so great to connect with asher i hope y'all uh, enjoyed the conversation i hope you'll go and check out some of his music i wonder if you ever get into the just on your own time the instrumental uh version of things or or or, or listen to someone else's covers go down a youtube rabbit hole of covers is sometimes, that something you do sometimes right now my favorite is crang ben Whenever they oh the Karangbin covers oh yeah, yeah whenever yeah. they cover and they have a hip hop medley mm-hmm. out there that oh, is yeah. dynamite oh yeah Dell went to uh, their concert when they came through town I was out of town of course that always was happened yeah but. I didn't go because Radar was sick oh yeah yeah I mean I, I think there's something about uh, covers because it realizes the genius of the song if it really works and at least in my opinion if it works in different uh styles or mm. with different artists you know we were talking about nothing compares you know mm-hmm. prince can sing it and it's and it's down you know he 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 bodies it you know Sinead O'Connor you know hers is is timeless we we can talk about a, a number of those but i just think when you break something down to you know, uh, be uh, without its words or, you know, when you're just listening to the music of a thing, it's really incredible to to hear what what pieces of music, what songs have legs without the famous artists behind it or, or without even mm. the lyrics behind it. Mm-hmm. I think there's something to that. And Asher Lobb is doing great work in uh, realizing that and, you know, making a, a pretty good living doing so. So uh, I'll have all of his information uh, in the description of this if you want to check out more of his music and all those all that sort of stuff. All right. We're getting to the final movement here. We're going to get into the triloquy with another example of one of these instrumental covers. I am uh, checking out the YouTube uh, page of Nicholas Yee. He's a cellist. He has all sorts of uh, pop covers out there. And this one is among my favorites. So we're going to listen to a bit of uh, this medley to get us into the final movement of this week's triloquy. (laughs) 
how he used the body of his cello mm-hmm. and, re- and recorded that to make that that's beat nice. in the background. That's 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 really cool. Yeah. Of course, say you will. Famous composition by the one and only Kanye West. So there has uh, been a lot of energy in my inbox, Scott, for me to address some of the latest news. <laughs> well, 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 latest now, maybe, you know, again, we're in the future. But, you know, for for folks who well, b- before we start talking about that, let me just say real quick, this recording reminds me the um, the loop pedal that you suggested to me. Mm-hmm. It, it's in my Amazon on my Amazon wish list. The next time I get a couple dollars, I'm going to go ahead and pick that up. But I guess I need an amp. To go with it, or yep. you, you, or I, I'm sure I can plug it right into a focus right or something, right? Uh, unknown, but sure. Okay, I mean, yeah. to, to re- I mean, you've recorded your looped thing. Oh, it, I, we can talk about this later, but yep. <laughs> um, but so there has been, you know, some things going on with with Kanye West since you know since you're using social media to be the cultural gap. You tell me, well, why are people talking about Kanye West? Couple things. <laughs> you said not not just one, but <laughs> <laughs> um. First was the White Lives Matter t-shirt. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. I, I don't know why that happened. And there is also his comments on Lizzo. Oh, I don't think I caught that. There was some weight comments. Some fatphobic something, okay. Uh, uh, with, with Lizzo. And most, probably the biggest one is the DEFCON 3 uh, comment about Jewish people. So the, oh, Lord. the, the anti-Semitism uh, tweet that uh-huh. he made that got him locked out of Twitter. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yes, See, he's locked you're out. You're on Twitter more than me. He's locked out right now. Mm, so okay. um, what you got? I mean, <laughs> well, see, maybe now I need to take back what I was going to say. No, listen, and this is going to be a short triloquy. So Several, several people have asked me, you know, about, you know, well, what about this is is what Kanye is doing? You, you know, you bring him up every now and again on the podcast. Is is this worth canceling him over? What what, what are your thoughts? What do you think? I, I'll i need to read the the anti-Semitic tweets or or maybe I don't. You know, I, I don't need my own proof. If they're saying he's being anti-Semitic, I need to listen to that. It's certainly if Twitter has kicked him off. But this is called Triloquy. I'll, I'll, I'll give my thoughts. When people are um, having a conversation around whether or not an artist needs to get out of here based on statements or or that sort of thing, I automatically go back to our classical composers who we who we talk about in and out and the horrible things that they've done and our ability to put that to the side for the sake of their music. Um, but not for contemporary artists or not living artists, you know, certainly not for living black artists. I think that, you know, we can have the conversation of getting a living artist music off the radio. We need to not be so scared to have that conversation about some of these dead composers. You know, when we start talking about getting Debussy out of here and actually getting Wagner out of here, I think that's when I'm going to have the conversation of just getting rid of some of these artists. Now, there are exceptions, of course. Folks like R. Kelly, I'm not, I'm never going to play any of that music on Triloquy or or any of my radio stuff. I don't even listen to it on on my own time. I think there definitely are exceptions to the way that I think about this. But I don't like the idea that we're so ready to bury someone who has been very influential to American classical music, who clearly has challenges that need to be addressed 
and um and, and and we're just willing to just throw them away. I don't see any help uh being offered to him. I don't see, you know, and and maybe there is, but I just wish that and again, I'm saying all of this without being aware of the anti-Semitic things that he said or or whatever it ended up being, but I just struggle so much when it comes time to get rid of who for me has been a very influential artist when we tiptoe and make exceptions for everyone else in this Western classical conversation. I get that. And I, and I wrestle with some of the same things too, but I have to ask you because I've heard you say protect black women at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. And he did not do that. No, he did not. Apparently I'm well, again, like I'm saying, I didn't know about that news, but I only say apparently because I don't know exactly what was said. Okay. Um, but yeah, I hear you. And and I don't I don't take that back. Protect black women at all costs. We need to get him some help so that he's not a continued harm to black women. I think that's more of my point. We're just shitting on him and then he is continued to be more and more marginalized among black people. And then he's out here wearing a White Lives Matter t-shirt. And then now people are shitting on him more and no value is being created. No harm is being reduced. I don't know. It's a soup right now that I can't really separate a lot of these things out because I'm also thinking back to when he had Marilyn Manson out in one of those stadiums. And see, and again, so maybe I just need to be more aware of things because when that came out, I didn't know about Marilyn Manson's drama. You know, that, that was just something I was supreme. Yeah. I was unaware of that. So there's, I guess, so now we're talking about the responsibility of consumers to know whose music you're listening to and to know what you're supporting and, and that sort of thing. I'll take that. I'll, I'll eat some of that. Now I'm, you know, if, if you, that's all, that's up to you though. If you're, if you're all right, listening to it, I, I've, I have not been a fan of his music, mm-hmm. but there are people that I have gotten rid of from my catalog. Sure. Ryan Adams. Yeah. Eric Clapton, Morrissey, mm. all of these people. And it's, it's, it's not hard for me. Yeah. As soon as I heard that, that come out, something they said that I objected with, you're, you're, you're done in my catalog. Uh, I said, so now I need to go back and, and decide if I'm going to, you know, actually get rid of Kanye. I was looking forward to Christmas in Harlem this year. <laughs> the track, the Kanye track. All right. But let's turn this back to the arts. Okay. We can, we can say it's okay to forego some people's music. Do you not agree that we we make exceptions far beyond what we're making for living artists when it comes to these historical white men, as we were saying a few weeks ago? Right. And, you know, I, I feel like we don't have that conversation. I don't I don't have an argument at all for that because that happens a lot. But that doesn't make um, uh, that doesn't make not holding him accountable. OK, right. That's true. That's very true. I wish I could sit down and have a conversation. Hell, he had the White Lives Matter shirt on with, uh, what's, what's her name? <laughs> Candace Owens. Yeah. I would love to have a, engage in a conversation with her. Uh, but, you know, you also have to understand the, the mouse traps that are laid out before me when it's time for me to paint things with a black and white brush. Mm-hmm. As soon as I shit on Kanye West for wearing a White Lives Matter t-shirt, okay, now I'm bad. Now I'm, I'm the racist. Now I hate white people. You know, I don't, so I, I don't like that either. So I, I can't just dismiss him for wearing a shirt like that because I think there's nuance. We have to talk about where that statement white lives matter comes from. What's that, what that is responding to, you know, it's not just a, 
like I said, a, a, for lack of a better phrase, a black and white thing. I think there's conversation and consideration that we have to bring to conversations like those. And that's what I bring when it comes to an artist like Kanye or, or, or maybe, you know, I'm laying bare a place in my life that I need to, you know, create some uh, deeper consistency and maybe put my money where my mouth is. But, you know, it's this this is my challenge, I guess. Last question, okay. because you brought it up. He, he needs help. Mm. The, the mental health aspect of it. This is something else that I pulled from online. The, the, the conversation I found going on was does. A, I'm not going to say this right, but does does a does a. A, a mental health lapse mm-hmm. or, or, or he's having some sort of a, an episode. Let's say that I know that I'm not being correct. Does a mental health episode reveal true feelings or does that make you say something you wouldn't normally say? If I'm going to, if I'm going to be real, uh, I, I suppose I have to say that it reveals true feelings. So Kanye is showing us who he is. Kanye is showing us who he is. So this is my deal. I guess I'll I'll say this. When we start talking, and uh, I hate it, but when we start being consistent in the way that we do this across the board and spread that into the way that we program Western classical music, okay, I can have the conversation. But at this point, I cannot accept that there's an artist that I'm supposed to take away my respect for and bow down to half these composers. What were we talking about um, a couple of weeks ago with the numbers? 74 point something percent of the composers. I'm supposed to just not say anything about some of the things that took place there Mm -hmm. and 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 just, you know, swallow that, have the art versus artist conversation there, but not do that with Kanye. Hey. I'm evolving. Shakamuni booty, Shakamuni Buddha is still working on me. So <laughs> they say God is still working on me. Um, it's a nuanced conversation that I guess I'm working on. This is called Triloquy. I'm, I'm just putting my honest to God feelings out there. So, mm-hmm. hey, I think value creation is something that we can think about. I think we can talk about not uh, continuing to isolate people who are obviously acting out. I don't think it helps to make public statements shitting on this artist. You know, it, it doesn't add to anything. It doesn't make him better. And I don't, I don't think it makes us better. I don't know. I'm being Miss America about this, maybe, in some people's opinion, I'm sure. But hey, give it a try. Maybe, you know, be nice about something and think about how positive change can happen. I, I mean, I've, I've certainly, Scott, you have bear witness to it. I've certainly tried to bring that to the podcast. I don't think I am as accusatory or wall building as I used to be. I think there are bridges mm-hmm. that can be built. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to see with this brilliant artist, because honestly, I'm not ready to cut off his music. So <laughs> let's build bridges. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time.